morning. It is so good to be together. If I've not met you yet, my name's Nathaniel. I'm one of the leaders here uh, at 502, and I'd love to catch up with you at the end. So please do come and say hello, especially if you've got questions about what I'm about to bring. It'd be great to talk it through at the end. Now, if you haven't been among us, uh, then you won't know that we've been going through the book of Acts together. And this morning, we're back in Acts, in Acts 23 and 24. So if you start thumbing your way there and put a finger in the page, it's page 1120 if you want to find it quickly. But I'm going to start this morning with a story about a Christian hero. His name is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Anybody heard of him? Dietrich Bonhoeffer. There he is. So if you don't know who he is, he was a German pastor and theologian around about the time of World War II. He was a very respected man, wore wide-rimmed spectacles. You can see them in that grainy black and white photo there. He'd worked in Britain, he'd worked in America, and found himself back in Germany at the height of the Nazis' power during World War II. He was very much anti-Nazi, in opposition to the state, and was quite vocal against their regime. And at one point, he was even accused of an assassination attempt, an assassination plot on, on Adolf Hitler. He was known for his radical faith in Jesus, and he didn't pledge allegiance to the state, but was always clear that first allegiance is to Jesus and Jesus alone. His gospel message was alive, and he continued to preach, even after being sent to a concentration camp, after being, uh, after being held captive uh, by the Nazis in Germany. And we're going to be picking up his story a little bit later as we go, but I think Bonhoeffer could sympathize with much of what Paul was going through as we pick up our story in Acts this morning. Last we saw Paul, he'd been arrested and he was awaiting trial in Jerusalem. He'd been causing a stir for the gospel and the Jews managed to get him arrested. Like Bonhoeffer, he was being held captive, awaiting trial, but was still sharp for the gospel that he was preaching. Matt Hosier was preaching two weeks ago and ended in, in uh, Acts chapter 23, verse 11. In Acts chapter 23, verse 11, and you'll see it there, it says, The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage, as you've testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. So God there clearly tells Paul what to do next, doesn't he? You can imagine, Paul's stuck in an army barracks, he's... He thinks, you know, what on earth is going on here? What's going on next? How comforting must it have been in that moment to have God appear to him and say, don't worry, Paul, I've still got a plan for you. You're going to be testifying about me in Rome. What an amazing scene. God appears to tell Paul that he's still in control. It's a comfort to Paul, but also a reminder that things are going exactly to God's plan, even if it doesn't look like it. And it's quite true to life, isn't it? Christianity doesn't always feel like winning, we experience the same frustrations, the same pain as the rest of the world. I'm sure Bonhoeffer could uh, sympathize with that as he was being carted off to a concentration camp. Bonhoeffer and Paul were both held captive for their faith, and we're quite lucky. Nobody's going to hold us captive this morning for what we believe in. I'm very lucky because I'd be the first one, wouldn't I, standing up preaching in front of you all to be carted off if that was the case. So we're very lucky. But what is our prize? Is it risking ridicule for the sake of the gospel? People thinking that we're stupid or old-fashioned for believing in a God that the rest of the world has outgrown. Through the story of Acts, God is showing us time and time again that it's in the worst of circumstances and the most tenuous of backdrops that he brings about his greatest victories. And that's the case with Paul. So as we continue to read this morning, hopefully we'll see some more of that coming forward. 
Now, I love crime dramas when they're on television. I don't know if anybody watched anything like Broadchurch or The Bodyguard. I can't get enough of them. I'm all about it. So much so that I've even started listening to podcasts. And there's one called Serial that does the same thing. It's a big courtroom drama, and it's all played out. And I can't wait to get in my car in the morning to put the uh, podcast on and have a listen as I go. And this morning, we've got drama that is up there with the best of them, okay? So you're going to have to hold on to your hats this morning because this is going to be a fast-paced look at one of the biggest drama courtroom scenes that you've seen in a long time. We're going to have evidence and examination and judgment and hopefully a little bit of victory in there as well. It's going to be more gripping than the best TV show. So let's start We've got quite a lot to get through, so I'm going to be summarizing passages as I go, but hopefully you can read along with me and see that it's true to the text as we keep on going. So we start 23, verse 12, and it says this, The next morning some Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they'd killed Paul. Uh Uh-oh, here we go, we're straight into the drama. From step one, a plot to kill our main character. Paul's, Paul's for the chopping block. We've already got our drama. You see, as we carry on through Acts 23, you'll see the Jews thought they had their man when he was arrested in Acts 21. He was being held in this Roman barracks, but for the Jews, justice wasn't coming quite quickly enough. So they hatch a plot here in Acts 23, starting in verse 12, to kill him. And what they were going to do, the Bible tells us, is they were going to call him to a Jewish tribunal at a place called the Sanhedrin. And they had this plan to divert him through these narrow streets and ambush him and kill him along the way. Of course, we've already read Acts 23 verse 11, so we know where this story is going to end up. And so did Paul. Paul already knows where he's going, and it's not to the Sanhedrin, it's to Rome, where he'll end up preaching the gospel. God told him that, so Paul's got no need to fear. In the story in Acts 23, Paul's nephew catches wind and tells his uncle, who tells him to go and tell the commander And the commander hears Paul's nephew's tale of events and foils the plot, sending him not to a tribunal at the Sanhedrin, but elsewhere instead. Speaking of these passages, the commentator John Stott said, even the most careful and cunning of human plans cannot succeed if God opposes them. No weapon forged against him will prevail. And above all, Paul knew that his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, was with him and would keep his promise that he would bear witness someday, somehow, in Rome. So right away, we've got to see the big picture here in Acts 23. Those in opposition think that they've found a way to kill him. They've been here before, but finally this time they think they've hatched the perfect plan. But God uses it for good by using it to put Paul right where he wants him. God's sovereignty is evident throughout this story. No matter the circumstance, God is working, and the plots of men won't stop him from enacting his perfect plan. Think about this in your life for a second, okay? When circumstances against you, does that mean that God's not working in your life? Just because you can't see his hand, does that mean it's not there? No, because he works all things to his will. Just because you can't see his hand doesn't mean it's not there. God is putting everything in place in our story this morning for his church to continue to grow. And as we move further through Acts 23, you see that Paul isn't transferred to Rome, but to a place called Caesarea, which is a large Roman city. And he's sent along with a letter. And we're going to read the letter and pick the story up here in Acts 23, verse 26. Claudius Lysias, who's the chap who's writing the letter, says, To His Excellency, Governor Phoenix, greetings. 
This man was seized by the Jews, and they were about to kill him. But I came with my troops and rescued him, for I learned he was a Roman citizen. That isn't quite true. I do feel that Lysias there is being a little bit kind towards himself as he writes this letter. I must have uh, gone through the same degree in PR that I did. Let's carry on. I want to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found the accusations had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present their, to you their case against him. So here in this letter, we're introduced to a second of our main characters for this morning, and that is Governor Felix. Governor Felix is going to act as judge in our courtroom drama this morning, and the drama is going to get more and more intense as we go. Judge Judy, eat your heart out, okay? This is, this is where the real drama is going to be for us this morning. So I want to stop quickly, and I'm going to introduce you to our main characters in our courtroom drama this morning. And look at this. I've even brought some visual aids with me just to help you as we go. First of all, we've got Paul. He's our defendant in the courtroom drama this morning. And Paul has been accused by the Jews of teaching contrary to their law. They're mad. He's going around teaching that Jesus was the Son of God and died and rose again. And he was saving not only Jews, but Gentiles. So they managed to get him arrested, and they've put him in the dock. There he is. Then we've got our prosecution for the morning. And this is Ananias, and he's our accuser. And he was a high priest who we were introduced to earlier in Acts 23. He's from the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, and he was a high priest well known for his violence. If you have a look in Acts 23, there's a point in the Sanhedrin during the first trial where Paul's standing up and giving testimony, and uh, Ananias turns around and orders somebody near him to smack him in the mouth. Yeah, this guy's not a nice chap. And he's lawyered up as well, okay? And he's brought this guy Tertullus with him as well to act as his advocate Tertullus is going to be our chief prosecutor this morning as the lawyer. And he, uh, along with Ananias, also comes with some elders from the Sanhedrin. So they're over here, and they form the prosecution in today's courtroom drama, okay? And then, finally, we've got Felix. He's our judge. Now, his brother got him his job as governor, and we're told that he was ruthless in quelling Jewish uprisings in the past. He's presiding over our court case, and he already knows the Romans in Jerusalem have found no charge against Paul. Why? Because Lysias wrote him a letter to tell him exactly that. So what is he going to make of all this? And we'll put Judge Felix, our judge for the morning, here. So the final thing we need in our court case is a jury, and I'm afraid that's you. I've run out of bits of paper, so you're the only people left. So... As our courtroom drama carries on, get ready to get involved. Examine the evidence for yourself and see what you think. Now, this court case is an important one, so as a jury, you'll need to examine the evidence carefully as we continue to read. Is Paul right about Jesus, or should he be shut up, perhaps even permanently? So the drama starts then with Tertullus over here on our prosecution bench, and he presents the case for the prosecution but not before, some very nauseating flattery towards Felix. Okay, this guy was uh, a pro after all. He was, he was the guy that had been uh, appointed to be the lawyer. So, Acts 24, here we go. Tertullus stands up to give his account on behalf of the prosecution, and he says this. 
Oh, Felix, we have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we are acknowledge this with profound gratitude. And Felix is over here. Oh, you. Oh, stop. Come on. But we carry on. And then he says, but in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He's a ringleader of a Nazarene sect, and he even tried to desecrate the temple. So we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges that we are bringing against him. There we go. Tertullus sits down. The prosecution delivers this strong line. And the Jews that are in, remember the elders were brought from the Sanhedrin, the Jews that were in the courtroom drama, they're whooping and hollering, Woo, yeah, Tertullus, come on. Yes, we've got our man. He's been strong. Then Felix, presiding as judge, turns to Paul and says, right, your turn. And now Paul stands up. And Paul replies, I know that for a number of years you've been judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city, and they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, however, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they're calling a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and is written in the prophets, and I have the same hope in God as these men, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked, so I strive always to keep my conscience clear before man and God. And we're going to pause halfway through Paul's defense here just to make a couple of quick points. Jury, how are you doing? I mean, you've heard the prosecution, you've heard the defense. Where are you so far? Which way are you leaning? Keep thinking about it as we, as we go. See, the first point I want to make about Paul's defense is that he doesn't deny who he is or what he believes. The Jews accuse Paul of being a ringleader of this Nazarene sect and causing trouble. And Paul's response? Well, I didn't cause any trouble, but if Nazarene sect, you mean, do I believe in Jesus, then... Yeah, guilty, I guess. He was also very clear that far from a heretical sect, Paul worshipped the same God that these guys worship. We're on the same side here. I just see Jesus as the fulfillment of the law that they're trying to protect. Paul says he's a follower of the way or a follower of Jesus and starts to tell them exactly what that means to him. Even by calling him the way, he's risking a lot because the Jews are accusing him of elevating Jesus to the place of God. And right here, as a part of his defense, he's saying it to their face. I believe in Jesus. See the drama as it unfolds. It gets even worse because Paul then says, I believe in the law, but the law won't save you. Jesus will. I believe in the way. Jesus is the only way to God. And it's here that I want us to take note, because this is what we're being called to as well. See, Paul faces opposition. He's literally stood in the middle of a courtroom giving his defense, and he doubles down. He doubles down and tells everybody, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Look at yourself. Would you do the same in the face of opposition? How easy do you find it to talk about Jesus 
to your friends and co-workers, family, would you stand up in a moment like this and be quite as bold as Paul was? Back to Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, very quickly. So he's being held in our German concentration camp, and as Paul uh, was doing, he was continuing to preach about Jesus in that camp as he went. He was speaking to the guards. He was writing letters, speaking gospel truth from the confines of his concentration camp. History is full of people who understand the impact of the gospel. You see, the gospel, if you really understand it, is a transformational power for mankind. Paul preaches it. Bonhoeffer did. Even when it looks like they're down and out, they're standing in the dock and they're facing trial. They're in the concentration camp. And what do they do? Do they deny Jesus in order to to save their own necks? No, they double down. We love Jesus. This is what life is all about. And that's what I want us to see through this text this morning as well. This is what we're being called to. If you're a Christian, then you're not just called to come here on a Sunday and and kind of clock in and feel like you've done your, your Christian bit for the week. You're called to testifying to your faith, no matter what. And if we continue to look at Paul's defense, he underlines why. Believing in Jesus isn't just a nice thing to do. It doesn't just give us an excuse to get out on a Sunday morning. It's not some private members club where we all get benefits from meeting together. Actually, this is a life and death matter. You see, Paul says, as a part of his defense here in verse 17, if you have a look, uh, a little bit before, sorry. He talks and he says that there's going to be judgment for the wicked and for the righteous. There will be a resurrection for both the righteous and the wicked. Verse 15, sorry. You see, Jesus for the Christian means hope. It means that we know the way, the way to God. But those who don't know him, who don't know the way, will only find death. And that brings me on to my second point. And my second point is this. Paul has hope in the resurrection. And then he tells everybody else that they should too. Like like I said, Paul says there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. And Paul isn't just talking about life with Jesus now, but life with Jesus forever. Paul has hope in the resurrection. And you can tell that by how he lives his life. He's so captivated by Jesus that his resurrection, defeating sin and death forever, has so captivated him that he's made it his life's mission to tell other people about it. Why? Because it's a matter of life and death. That's what he's saying. If you know Jesus, there is being a a place prepared for you in heaven. You can have hope in the resurrection. And if you don't, guess what? There's an eternity waiting for you as well, but it's not going to be quite so kind. Paul lives his life with this in mind. In a letter that he wrote to the church in Philippi, he said the same thing. And it's going to come up behind us. He says, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. You see, the resurrection brings hope to those who believe in Jesus because death is not the end. It's the start of an eternity in heaven with Jesus. So Paul takes risks for the gospel. 
He knows what he's received. He's received salvation, something he couldn't have achieved by his own works, but something that by God's grace has been given to him. He understands that. It's worth far more than anything this world has to offer. And that's true for us as well. As Christians, we're to have hope in the resurrection. Paul's using it as a part of his defense. Worse though, he's telling people there's a judgment coming for the righteous and the wicked. Everyone's going to get what's coming to them. You better, under, you better get, to, get to grips with what's going to happen to you in eternity. And to make it right whilst you've still got the chance. See Paul doubling down here as a part of our courtroom drama? And this isn't the first time he's getting himself into hot water for this. His defense continues. And we're going to jump down now to Acts 24 and start in, in verse 20. And Paul's talking, continuing to talk about his defense. And he's saying... Look, I'm not a troublemaker. I'm not the troublemaker that these guys make me out to be. And then he has this light bulb moment, and he says, Or these who are here should state which crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin, unless it was that one thing I shouted when I stood in their presence. Is it concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today? What he's referring to is his first trial back at the Jewish tribunal at the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. And we actually read that a couple of weeks ago in Acts 23. And when he appears before the Sanhedrin and before Ananias, who's now his chief prosecutor here this morning, he says in Acts 23, it says in Acts 23 verse 6, Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. And when he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say there's no resurrection and that there are neither angels or spirits, but the Pharisees believe in all these things. Can you start to see he's had his first trial in Jerusalem, and that was full of drama, and he caused a stir, and obviously upset Ananias, because here he is, lawyered up with Tertullus at his side, and he's here at his second trial, giving his defense. We're starting to see where the trouble for Paul is coming from. Paul's preaching about Jesus and about eternity. He's saying it's time to get right with God through Jesus because soon it will be too late. This life's not worth worrying about in the context of eternity. It's important to know where you're going to spend it. Why did the Jews hate it? Why was our chief prosecutor, high priest Ananias, standing on this side? Because Paul says Jesus is the only way to God. And the Jews don't believe it. So what does eternity look like for them? Not good, right? And that's offensive. That's an offensive thing to say. If I was to walk out onto Ashley Road and start talking to people this morning, telling them they were going to go to hell, that's an offensive thing to say. We should see that. The Jews are offended. They've taken Paul to court. They're trying to kill him. They're offended by this. (coughs) Back to the trial then. From 22, we'll read to the end. Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, here he is standing, presiding over the trial, decides to adjourn the proceedings. When Lysias, the commander, comes, he says, I will decide your case then. And he ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Several days later, Felix, our judge, comes back with his wife, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Jesus Christ, As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. 
when I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bride. So he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. But because Felix wants to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. So Felix dismisses the trial. He's stuck between a rock and a hard place, really, because as the letter from Lysias told him, well, we can't really find any wrong with it. He's not broken the law. He's not, you know, he's not killed anyone. We can't really find any trouble with Paul here. But at the same time, he wants to find favor among the Jews. And we know that because we've just read it. So he's stuck between a rock and a hard place. Pending judgment, Paul's taken back under guard, but Felix wants to know more. He goes with his wife to see Paul again, and Paul gets an opportunity to share the gospel in full. He talks about faith in Jesus, righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Paul doesn't miss a beat. This life is all about Jesus, and there will be a judgment to come. And that means that we have a greater judge than Felix to look forward to, a higher priest than Ananias, a greater advocate than Tertullus, one who will advocate to God on our behalf, and a greater hope than Paul, one who will give us eternal hope, and that is Jesus. So let me put Jesus here instead. You see, a time will come where Jesus will judge the living and the dead, and it will come down to this. Do you believe in the way? Have you given your life to Jesus? Felix is afraid, and he should be, because it's sobering stuff. One day, this life will come to the end, and we'll all be sent to a courtroom drama of our very own to face judgment. The righteous and the wicked alike, because Paul said it. When we do, it won't be on what we've done. We're not going to be able to stand there and say, hey, well, I gave to charity. I was a good guy, you know. But it's going to be on what we believe in, because by rights, we all deserve hell. We're not good enough to measure up to God's perfection, not one of us. All of us are blemished by sin and by rights deserve hell, even the best of us. Without Jesus, it's off to hell for all of us. But this is the gospel Paul was preaching. God loves us so much that he made a way, the way, for us to be with him. And if we believe, we won't perish, but we'll have eternal life. Christ rose again. The resurrection brought about total defeat of sin. And that means eternity for those who believe in him. So on judgment day, the question won't be, what have you done? But who is your advocate? Who do you believe in? There's an oft-quoted story of a judge who had to convict his son of a crime. And because he was a just judge, he wanted to give the punishment fitting for the crime. But after presiding over the case and handing down the punishment, he stepped out of the dock and took off his court robes and went and paid the punishment on behalf of his son. Who did Paul believe in? Jesus. He doubled down in his defense. I believe in the way. Paul knew where he was going. He told the Philippians he couldn't wait to get there. He had hope in the resurrection. What about our German friend Bonhoeffer? What do you think he believed in? See, he knew that too. He ended up on death row because of what he believed in and because of the way that he was being quite so vocal against the Nazis. And as they prepared him to be hanged, he said this. This is for me the end, the beginning of life. 
And the SS doctor who witnessed his death said, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. You see, Bonhoeffer knew where he was going because of who he believed in. He had an advocate who went to God on his behalf so that he could be free and enter an eternity with God forever. And what about Felix, our judge? Well, I'm not so sure about him. I don't know, jury, what about you? Where do you think Felix might land? I mean, he was afraid, wasn't he? The passage tells us. See, for our Felix, he'd risen to the rank of governor. He had a good job, a good income, a good reputation. He could walk around Caesarea with his head held high. His brother had got him a good job, put in a word. You know, this guy had it all. But actually what Paul was saying is, pal, this counts for nothing when you come face to face with Jesus. So jury, it's deliberation time for you. Examine the evidence. What do you think? Who will you believe in? Will you believe in the Son of God who died and rose for you? Do you agree with Paul, our defendant, that Jesus is the way? Or do you think it's a load of rubbish like these guys here? You see, Paul was convinced that Jesus was the only way to God and he had hope in the resurrection. And I want to come to an end by talking a little bit about what it means to have hope in the resurrection because we've heard Paul say it a few times, I've said it a few times this morning and it's what this morning's passage is all about, having hope in the resurrection. So what does it mean to have hope in the resurrection? Well, let's, let's have a look at what the resurrection means for both the wicked and the righteous because Paul points out that there are implications for both. For the righteous or the Christians among us, what does the resurrection mean for us? Well, Jesus lived a life without sin and he died on the cross and all the sins of the world were put on him in that moment. He died that perfect death, but there was more. He rose again to life. And when he did, he brought about a permanent, everlasting victory over sin and death. And that means this morning, Jesus is alive. And that means celebration for us. You can celebrate the same way that the Jews in the courtroom were when they heard Tertullus stand up. What I'm saying this morning is, Jesus is alive. Yeah? Come on. That's what, sir. Thanks. Tepid response. Wow. Tough crowd. You see, the resurrection gives Christians hope because our sins are forgiven. We can look forward to a day where we're restored alongside our Father in heaven. We're going to come and take communion later. And when we do, we're not going to be mourning a death, but celebrating a life. Jesus is alive, and he's taken us to heaven with him because we believe in him. That means that we can have hope today in Jesus because his death and resurrection means our sins are forgiven. And God looks at us and doesn't see our wrongdoing, but Jesus' blood making, a, making us righteous and making a way for us to be with him. You've got hope this morning. Everything you've done wrong, everything you've done wrong is forgiven forever. You're free of it because of what Jesus did. And you are now alive through Christ. And it also gives us a hope and anticipation of the day to come. Because, Christians, death isn't the end, but it's the beginning of a glorious eternity. See, we all might suffer in this life. We all might experience death, understand what it is to know somebody who's died and have that mourning, that sense of loss. But as Christians, we can have hope as we look to the life to come. 
Revelation 21 says this, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the former things have passed away. What does that mean for us? It means that knowing this morning that God has prepared a place for us with no death or sadness or crying or pain. If you're in pain this morning, you can look forward to a day where you will not be in pain anymore. If you are sad or depressed or mourning, you can look forward to a day where none of that will be true of you anymore forever. There's coming a day where none of us will be in pain ever again. Praise God. I'm with Paul. I can't wait. (laughs) There's hope when you're sick. There's hope when you're poor. There's hope when you're sad. There's hope when you're hurting. There's hope when you're depressed. There's hope when you're mourning. Because God has prepared a place for us where all those things are going to be gone forever. Christians always have hope through Jesus. We always have hope through the resurrection. But what if, like Felix, you're listening and you don't have that hope? You don't believe the same way. You're listening and you're thinking, I mean, it's okay for you, but I'm just not sure I'm there. Are you a little bit like Felix and actually you're afraid hearing this? What does that mean for me? What does my eternity look like? You don't have that hope, that assurance, that belief in Jesus. Well, this morning I'm imploring you to think about it. Because the Bible talks about another place as well. And it's a place of judgment and punishment. And the Bible calls that hell. It's the place that we all deserve, but by God's grace, Jesus made a way for us not to be there. So if you're not a Christian, honestly, I hope this morning's a wake-up call. Paul got it, and it changed his life. Life with Jesus doesn't mean a a one-time prayer to secure our eternity. You see, for us, the resurrection changes everything. If you truly get it, the price that was paid for you so that God, who created the universe, looks at you and sees the perfection of his son, if you truly, truly get that, then resurrection life comes with a new calling. It means living knowing death has no hold on you anymore because God's prepared a better place anyway. It means not living in fear of what people might think because it doesn't matter because there's an eternity prepared for you where the judgment of man won't mean anything compared to the judgment of the great judge. And it means acting with urgency because there are people outside this room, I've been watching people walk past this door as I've been talking, who will experience a very different eternity if they don't hear about Jesus' resurrection as well. Christians, what I'm saying is it's time to get serious. Apply the gospel to every part of your life. How will you testify to the good news of Jesus and his resurrection as you leave? Paul was willing to die for it. Are you? Making gospel decisions isn't easy, and a true understanding of who we are in Jesus and the hope that we have calls for a radical faith that moves us into action. It calls us into a deeper relationship with Jesus, and it calls us into a life of faith-filled, spirit-empowered mission as we go out from here being bold and taking courage to tell the world about who Jesus is and what he's done. So let's do it, hey? I'm going to pray for us, and the band are going to come back And then later, Matthew will lead us in a response. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much that as Christians, we can stand here this morning forgiven and free. We have a hope in you because you died and you rose again. And at your resurrection, sin and death was defeated forever. And that means celebration for us this morning because we know that our sins are forgiven if we believe in you. Thank you that we have a great high priest, a perfect judge, an advocate on our behalf, a hope for the future in Jesus. 
I thank you, Lord, that you have prepared a place for us where there's going to be no more sickness or suffering or death, an eternity for us to look forward to and give us hope for a future that is perfect with you. And I thank you that that means life-changing decisions that can be made on this earth because we don't have to, uh, we're not bound by death's grip anymore. We're not bound by the grip of sin. We're not bound by what other people think of us. Actually, we're free to worship you and to tell other people about this amazing gift of grace as well. Lord, give us boldness and courage to do it. I pray in your name that we might go out and be life changers for you. That we might go out and live a life of faith-filled, spirit-empowered mission, knowing who we are, knowing that we belong to the way, and knowing that your resurrection gives us a hope for now and a hope for eternity.